0: Hello and welcome to Japan Explained! In a previous episode we traced the more than thousand year old history of the Tokaido road and try to understand its place in Japanese history and culture. But no matter how important it might be, Tokaido is just a road. It is completely useless as long as no one walks on it. So this time I invite you to take a closer look at people who traveled along the Tokaido road in the 17th-19th centuries. As you already know, in the 17th-19th centuries, Tokaido connected imperial Kyoto with the new center of the country Edo which was the seat of the Tokugawa shogunate. Tokugawa Bakufu exercised real power by making laws, collecting taxes and administering justice, but it did so with the tacit permission of the emperor, who, just on paper, remained the supreme ruler of Japan. The symbolic importance of the emperor was also emphasized by the fact that the way to Kyoto was called Nobori, go up, while all the way from Kyoto to Edo and uh, basically anywhere else in the country was called kudari, go down. And from the soy sauce explained episode you may remember that this was also the name given to the goods that were shipped to Edo from the capital region, such as kudari joyu and kudari zake. With all that said, all roads led to Edo. The Nihonbashi bridge, from which the five roads of the Gokaido network started, was the true center of Japan. Nihonbashi is also the starting point of the famous Hiroshige series 53 Stations of Tokaido. Namely, it begins with a daimyo procession, crossing the bridge in the early morning. Daimyo, aka feudal lords, aka provincial rulers, were frequent guests of Edo. Of course, you can call them so. Completing unification of Japan and establishing peace in the country, Tokugawa clan made sure that no one would disturb it again. That's how the sankin kotai system came into being, requiring family members of the daimyo, usually the wife and heir, to reside in Edo, while the feudal lord himself had to spend half of his time there. For the Tokugawa, the system had many obvious and not some obvious advantages, and we'll talk about it some other time. What matters to us today, however, is that all these daimyo left their domain at least once a year and traveled with their retinue to Edo and back. All the daimyo going to Edo from the western parts of the country were obliged to use Tokaido, and only eight of them were later allowed to choose between Tokaido and another major highway, Nakasendo. But while initially the daimyo's retinue resembled a small army, gradually the attire, weapons, and other paraphernalia of the procession turned more and more decorative. By the mid 17th century, the procession becomes a daimyo's peacock tail, the size and splendor of which depends on the daimyo's status and the size of his domain, called Han. Rulers of smaller huns were accompanied by an entourage of just about 100 people, while the procession of the mighty Kaga sometimes reached 4,000 men. And all this retinue needed to be fed and lodged somewhere for the night. But while today you can simply call a restaurant or find out how many rooms are available at the hotel on a given day before booking it, things were a little bit different in the other period. Before the procession left home, letters were sent to postal stations on the way, stating when the procession planned to arrive, how many people need to be accommodated and how many horses and porters to be repaired. When the procession was on its way, retainers in charge of lodging would go to the station ahead of the rest of the retinue and after presenting the Sekifuda tablet would make the final arrangements. Sometimes the entire procession would not into one postal station, and the remaining samurai could then be lodged at nearby temples or even sent to the next station. In addition to excessive lavishness, the processions constantly suffered from unpaid overweight, leading to regular complaints from postal stations, wait points being set up along the road, and repeated bakufu orders to reduce the size of processions. All this, however, fell on deaf ears. The pompous trains kept heading for Edo, despite the fact that they were bankrupting not only the post stations along the way, but the feudal lords themselves. Ordinary travelers, be they merchants, peasants, artisans or even samurai, had to give way to the daimyo procession. There was, however, one exception. Hikaku speed messengers literally flying feet that delivered urgent official mail hikaku worked in pairs one carried a locket box with a message while the other held a paper lantern to light the way at night and ran a bell to signal their approach even the daimyo had to give free passage to those messengers and if the rivers flooded hikaku were the first to cross them as soon as the water had reached a safe enough level But while Daimyo just had to give way to messengers, there was a procession that made Daimyo get out of their palanquins and farmers to stop working in roadside fields for a while. All these honors were reserved for Uji green tea, which was delivered to Edo specially for the Shogun. Reports from Uji about the growth of tea leaves would reach Edo in late April or early May. And as they were received, the tea caddies accompanied by about 10 members of retinue, departed Edo for Uji in southern Kyoto. Nine days after their arrival, the pots were filled with freshly harvested tea, sealed, wrapped in silk cloth, then in Fukusa cotton cloth, and placed inside a box in a specially designed palanquin. Then all that well-packed beauty was sent to Edo to please the shogun. And since precious items traveled on the road instead of the sea used for most regular goods, the Chatsubudu-chu procession was born. It feels so weird from a modern-day perspective to give the passage and bow to tea caddies, but that's some other period reality for you. On a more mundane subject, let's take a look at how ordinary Japanese traveled along the Tokaido. In theory, they were not supposed to travel freely. In rigid Tokugawa society, everyone had their place, including a place on the map. In order to travel around the country, commoners had to obtain a permit that was valid for a certain route and a certain period of time. And if after that time the traveler did not return, he could be detained at the nearest checkpoint for traveling without permission and punished to the severity of the law. The reality, however, did not agree with such a harsh theory. The number of people willing to travel was steadily increasing, and government officials in Edo and in provinces were just overwhelmed by the workload. So travel permits, or rather permits for pilgrimages and recreational trips to hot springs, began to be issued by village heads, temples, or even by landlords, from whom the potential traveller had rented lodgings. The Bakufu did not allow them to do so, but it did not forbid them either, and silence in such a case is a sign of consent. In the 18th century, a new type of travel permit called Oraitegata appeared. It was a kind of passport, which one could use to go anywhere and for as long as one wished. But that's not all. A large number of travelers left home with no documents whatsoever. Because strict laws assumed equally strict enforcement. And checkpoints were staffed by, well, people. Thus, when Katsu Kokichi, a low-ranking samurai, showed up at the checkpoint without a permit and explained that he didn't even think about getting one, just grabbed his weapons and hit the road, The officers led him through, only telling him to obtain the paper next time. Most travelers were not as reckless, though, and felt safer having a permit. Since permission for pilgrimage was the easiest to get, Japan began to experience a pilgrimage boom. After all, on the way to a famous temple or shrine, one could do some business, enjoy the red-light districts, or simply visit famous sites. This is how pilgrimages in Japan became a cover for tourism. Travel Boom also finds its reflection in literature, from pilgrims' guidebooks that talk more about tourist attractions, regional cuisine and pleasure districts than about religious sites along the way, to fiction where characters obtain pilgrimage permissions to travel around Tokaido at their own pleasure. along with the rise in number of pilgrims, grows the tourism industry. While in the old days small groups of pilgrims would stay in temple lodgings, now commercial inns and guest houses began to sprout around popular temples like mushrooms after the rain. Teahouses, restaurants and other tourist-oriented establishments filled the space along the main roads, and Hikaku Postal Service opened to serve business travelers. It proved to be so good that government officials soon began to use the private messenger service as well. But all these comforts came at a price, and traveling was a costly affair. About 200 mon per night for the hotel, another 50-90 for each river crossing, plus you needed money for lunch for porters when your legs got tired, for entertainment during the trip in the end. Even with modest spending, this all added up to a tiny sum of 4-5 ryō. Or by my tentative calculations, about one-fifth of an annual income of a carpenter. And even if we consider that Samurai, for example, benefited from free ferry services and had some other perks, it was quite a lot of money. So, not everyone could afford to pay such a sum at once. And in the mid edo period, organizations called ko appeared. They were something like cooperatives formed by people from one or more neighboring villages. Each participant paid a membership fee, which was used to send a few members on a pilgrimage to a particular temple each year. The following year, a new group would go, and so each member had a chance to make a trip without breaking the bank. In addition, Core made prior arrangements with hotels and porter associations not to charge travelers directly, but to make all payments through them, thereby allowing travelers to carry less money. Very thoughtful in the age with no credit cards or ATMs. Now, let's take a closer look at what such a journey looked like for an ordinary Eda resident. First, we had to pack for the journey. For those who didn't know where to start, a book called Ryoko Yojinshu, something like Tips for Travelers, was published in the early 18th century. In the section Things to take with you on the road, it lists brush and inkstone, fan, needle and thread, pocket mirror, diary, comb, hair oil, paper lantern, candles, fire-making tools, rope and hooks. In addition, while traveling, even commoners were allowed to carry a sword, called tochuzashi. But quite often, instead of a sword, they took an empty cupboard, always cupboard filled with coins. Because even though the roads were cleared of bandits back in the 16th century, they were still full of thieves and scammers. And so it was better to keep your money close to you, in a place hidden from the public eye. Once ready, our traveler set out on his journey. On average, an Edo period man walked 40 kilometers a day, and a woman – 30 kilometers. That's why the first overnight stay for travelers leaving Edo would usually be Hodogaya station, 33 kilometers from Nihonbashi bridge, or Totsuka station, 42 kilometers from Nihonbashi. The average traveler walked at a speed of 4 kilometers per hour, not fast but he was walking on a sandy or rocky road in straw sandals tied around his ankles and to walk 40 kilometers a day he had to walk for 8-10 hours a day leaving the hotel before sunrise to arrive at the next accommodation before sundown it was possible of course to travel fewer kilometers a day but even for someone walking 40 kilometers a day The trip from Edo to Kyoto took 13-15 days. And the slower you moved, the more you would have to pay for the lodgings. There were, however, some ways to save money along the way. For example, you could pass your cargo off as the belongings of a daimyo, aristocrat or temple and pay a lower fee. Some daimyo and courtiers would even lend their wooden plagues to merchants for a fee. And by the mid-19th century, the practice had become so commonplace that it is mentioned in a merchant's guidebook as essential to their success in business. Okay, I think we've dealt with the regular travelers. Let's now look at the special cases. Because Tokaida was also occasionally used by entire foreign embassies and even an elephant, for example, Despite the fact that Japan was considered a closed country during the Tokugawa era, it maintained regular contacts with Korea, from where as many as 12 missions were sent to Edo, usually timed with the appointment of a new shogun. Passing Fukuoka and Shimonoseki, the embassy sailed through the inland sea of Japan and arrived in Osaka, where it disembarked and headed for Edo on foot, along the Tokaido diplomats with entourage and gifts surrounded by guards and japanese overseers marched to edo for about 15 days and triggered a boom in all things korean along the way the guards however had to make sure that the curious spectators gathered to watch the procession with flags and drums did not start pointing fingers and laughing at foreigners so as not to disrupt international relations To show their friendly disposition, the bakufu also tasked daimyo along the route with feeding, housing, entertaining, transporting and guarding the Korean envoys, which created another major expenditure for the daimyo. But seems like there were no limits to bakufu's hospitality. In 1655, before the arrival of the Korean delegation, the bakufu even built a new road through the picturesque but dangerous Sattapas, to make it easier for the ambassadors to reach Edo. Slightly more frequently visited Edo embassies from the Ryukyu Kingdom, which formally retained its independence, although it was in fact under the authority of the Southern Han of Satsuma. What can I say? Japan is a country of tradition. Today, Ryukyu Kingdom is a Japanese prefecture of Okinawa, which still continues to pretend that it is culturally and historically completely unrelated to the rest of Japan. Strange as it may seem, Europeans visited Edo more often than other foreigners. The Dutch trading post on Dejima Island in Nagasaki since 1660 had sent a small delegation to Edo with gifts to the shogun. First annually and then every four years. The delegation reached Honshu island by sea, then disembarked and marched to Edo on foot for another month or so, enjoying all the same privileges as the Daimyo procession. Japanese officials walked ahead of the delegation and guards made sure that passers-by made way for it and bowed. And if the road was too narrow, ordinary travelers had to get off the road entirely which sometimes forced them to step into knee-deep water of a roadside rice paddy. But the most interesting thing about foreigners' journeys through Tokaido is that they are very well documented. The jima was populated by doctors, scientists and amateur naturalists. Given the chance to get out of the closed island and observe real life in Japan during their long journey, they recorded and sketched literally everything that came into their view. Of course, they also evaluated everything according to what they considered to be good and progressive and what to be backward and barbaric. But this only enlivens the Tokaido, allowing us to look at the road through the eyes of real people. In 1691, Engelbert Kämpfer described the Tokaido road as crowded as the streets of a populous European city. And of the stretch of road between Osaka and Kyoto he wrote that the road and the surrounding countryside is covered with villages and not many more are needed to turn the whole road up to Miyako into an urban street. Another German doctor, Franz von Siebold, who traveled from Nagasaki to Edo in 1826, also confirmed the liveliness of Tokaido. Except for a small portion of the Tokaido, which passes through a mountainous region, the road consists of almost a continuous line of towns, villages and tea houses. Other parts of the road left foreign travelers less thrilled. For example, both Kempfer and a century and a half later Meatford were not in the best sense impressed by the execution sites with the heads and bodies of criminals on display. Camphor also refers to the post-station of Akasaka as the storehouse of horse, as it had a great supply of dressed-up trumpets. He also mentions that homosexual encounters were common during travelling. At the post-station of Okitsu, he describes the meeting with two or three young boys of 10 or 12 years of age, well-dressed, with their faces painted and feminine gestures. Kept by their lewd and cruel masters for the secret pleasure and entertainment of rich travelers, the Japanese being much addicted to this vice. A century and a half later, things were still the same, or maybe even worse, because in the mid 19th century, Mitfords described Shinagawa Station as follows The tea houses of Shinagawa, the suburb of Edo nearest to Yokohama, could tell many a story of deadly encounters. More than once, riding through that sinister and ill famed quarter at early dawn, we would come upon bloody traces of the night's debauch. Under the heady fumes of the hot sake, men's blood would boil to fever point. Obviously, the turmoil of the mid 19th century, known as Bakumatsu, did not add to the safety of postal stations and roads. The opening of Japanese ports to Westerners that started with the arrival of black ships and, just in case I have two-part episode about that, raised many objections and some foreign visitors had to pay with their heads for wanting to travel on Tokaido without proper preparations. In 1862, for example, an English merchant Charles Richardson accompanied by his friends traveled near Yokohama and all would be fine if they did not come across the procession of the daimyo of Satsumahan. According to Japanese rules, which the foreigners did not know, they had to get off the horses and make way for procession. Ideally, they should have bowed. But Englishmen continued to ride, and when Richardson got too close to the daimyo's palanquin, one of the samurai could not tolerate it any longer and attack the foreigner. Richardson died, causing a military conflict between England and Satsuma and a seriously discussed proposal to build a separate road for foreigners. It was, however, rejected because doing so would mean that the daimyo, along with the commoners, would be kept out of the sight of the glorious foreigners, and it should have been the other way round. The daimios regarded the removal out of the way of the foreigners, a disgraceful concession, as contemporary Francis Hall puts it. Hall himself was much more cautious about his behavior. In 1860, before going to see the procession of the daimio of Ovarijan, he asked for advice on how to do so, and was advised... To watch the whole affair from a friendly merchant's house, peeping through the cracks in the wall or kneel down and look up from under his cap. These options didn't appeal to him very much and eventually Hall decided to watch the procession from a safe distance, from a nearby hill he climbed with his opera binoculars. But, while the foreigners were curious to see the lavish procession of the Japanese tycoons without compromising their independence, special orders told them not to take any risks. The citizens of the United States shall be enjoined to abstain from going on the Tokaido in any locality where they may be exposed to danger, not only through regard to their own lives, but also for the purpose of avoiding the complications of the political situation, which might be occasioned thereby. Says the letter of US minister resident in Japan. Just a few years later, the Meiji era begins. It becomes safer for foreigners to travel in Japan. And with the rise of tourist interest came first foreign guidebooks to Japan, like a handbook for travelers in Central and Northern Japan, written by writers such as Sir Ernest Sato and B.H. Chamberlain. Two British men, who lived in Japan for many years, held high positions and were considered to be among the first Japanologists. The first foreign guidebooks written before the construction of the railroad focused their attention on Tokaido. The starting point of the journey, however, was not Tokyo, but Kanagawa, where the foreign settlement was located. The later railway-era foreign guidebooks are proud to include not only the beaten tracks with unestablished established routes such as the Tokaido, but also routes more difficult to access for the sake of those travelers who may wish to go further afield. And it is not a coincidence that as the railway expanded, So did the guidebook to provide a service for the foreigners who resided at Sannomiya International Settlement in Kobe. In the mid-19th century, we also get the first photos of Tokaido. In 1863, Italian-British photographer Felix Beato arrives in Yokohama and starts a photo studio. He creates albums with both staged and real-life photos. There we can find several photos of Tokaido, showing the road entirely as described by travelers of the earlier days. Wide, even, sandy and really busy with travelers of all classes walking in the shade of pine trees. The novelty and appeal of Japan, however, fades away rather soon. rapidly modernizing Japan of the late 19th century is already too civilized and westernized to be exotic. Sometimes the new government is clearly overdoing it, as French artist George Bigot shows in his cartoons. That is why he is much more interested in depicting the life of the common people, who were not ready for the rapid changes and the unexpected wave of enlightenment. In 1899, Bigot published an illustrated book, The Railway Journey from Tokyo to Kobe, Humorous Sketches by George Bigot. The book presents in a humorous manner incidents encountered at stations and trains that were surprising to a foreign traveler like him. This includes the Japanese habits of taking leave by Boeing, taking off shoes while traveling, drinking and eating in the train and so on. The book also connects the railway with the new disciplinary order of Major Japan, depicting the ubiquitous presence of the police. Lastly, let me tell you a little story about the elephant. Just in case, elephants are not found in Japan. But on several occasions, they were brought into the country as gifts. During the Edo period, an elephant, or more precisely, a pair of elephants, a male and a female, was sent as a gift to the eighth shogun Tokugawa Yoshimune. In 1728, two elephants brought from present-day Vietnam arrived at the port of Nagasaki. Sadly, soon after their arrival, the female elephant died of illness, and the male elephant set off on food for Edo alone. The good news, though, there is an account of the preparations for the elephant's arrival in Hakone postal station. There a special hut was built to accommodate the unusual guest, and his favorite treats, bamboo and sugar-free manjubans, were prepared. But unfortunately the elephant who had traveled over mountain pass was so tired that he has lost all appetite. The people who took care of him made everything they could to help him regain his strength. Then the arrested giant continued his journey spending the nights in Odawara, Hiratsuka, Hodogaya, Kanagawa and Kawasaki stations before finally arriving in Edo and entering the grounds of Edo castle. where the shogun with great interest? watched the rare animal. What do you say? Would you like to go back to the 18th century and travel the old Tokaido road? I would. I would, in spite of everything, even walk the new, paved and almost lost Tokaido of nowadays. But the 18th century one is still better, with diamond processions, elephants and Dutchmen. Ah, dreams sweet dreams. But anyways, a quick reminder that for the most curious of you there are two bonus episodes about Tokaido Road available on my Patreon page, the links to them are in the description. You can also help the podcast by leaving it a review or telling a friend about it. Or by making a donation. And that's all for today. Talk to you soon. Bye!